Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today marks the final day of the cabinet retreat for the Federal Liberal Party. What can we expect? Well, we'll talk about that. Hospitals in Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brandon, Burlington are all teaming up for the second wave of COVID-19. We'll give you the details on that. Hamilton teachers and the unions are worried about how many kids are showing up for school not wearing masks. And the U.S. dropped its aluminum tariffs just as Canada was preparing to retaliate. We'll talk about the implications of that announcement. It's all coming up. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The uh, cabinet retreat that we've been talking about uh, is ending later on today. We're told the Prime Minister is going to have a media conference sometime this afternoon to outline what was going on, uh, where the priorities are going to be. But apparently it was a pretty in-depth discussion about uh, what kind of programs the government may want to adopt uh, in the next little while and whether or not that's going to fly in once uh, the Parliament uh, gets back into session next week. Deputy Prime Minister uh, Christia Freeland uh, gave us a quick overview as to what was going on. 1.8 million Canadians who had work before the coronavirus struck either still don't have a job or aren't working as many hours as they would like to work. We need to get them back to work. Well, you know, we had discussions uh, about what might be on the agenda. Uh, there was talk about a basic income. There was talk about uh, national child care. Uh, but it seems to have boiled down to, well, just one thing. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Genevieve Tellier, professor in the School of uh, Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Uh, Genevieve, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Thank you very much, Bill. Notwithstanding the, the the rumors that we've heard, or maybe some would consider, I guess, trial balloons, uh, I, I get the sense, Genevieve, that uh, when uh, they, they break up today, this is all this is going to be COVID, COVID, COVID. That that seems to be the the driving force behind anything the government's going to do for the next little while. I think so, and with the rising number of cases that we see all across the country, uh, I don't think it could be uh, otherwise. And so, uh, Canadians will want any government, all government, to act on COVID. And there's certainly a role for the federal government to act on that. And uh, yes, it will be COVID. And uh, how to deal, I think, especially uh, with the economy. So it's one thing to say to people, don't go out and be careful. Uh, it's another thing to keep the economy running and, and create jobs for, for those who have lost those jobs. And so that's going to be a big challenge for the Liberals, but I think for any party uh, in um, in Ottawa, what proposition do they have to uh, bring back jobs and, and, and keep the economy afloat, if I could say. You know, we've heard a lot of, uh, of rhetoric, especially from the opposition parties, and they wanted, especially the Conservatives, uh, Genevieve, uh, want to, you know, get back into the we fiasco and, you know, what, who knew what and when did they know it and all this sort of stuff. Uh, is there an appetite for that now, or are we more concerned as a nation with, uh, with what's happening with COVID and the implications of COVID? I don't think there's a big appetite for that. That was a story that was run, that was going on during the summer. Most Canadians are not really aware of what is really the issue. Uh, for those who are, uh, I think their mind is already made up, and so we don't have any new facts, new uh, real uh, facts that could be game changer. Um, some may be unpleased with uh, how Justin Trudeau and the Liberals are, are behaving, uh, but the focus is uh, on COVID and, and the economy. So I, I think that the population will ask to politicians to step up and, and put those um, discussion on, on less important aspects like uh, we charity aside and focus on uh, first the COVID and so the health issue and second the economy. So for me, the we charity, the opposition will try to keep it alive, but I don't think that uh, most Canadians want to hear about that. 
Well, I, I've talked to somebody who I had a lot of confidence in and, and respect for their, their abilities to kind of discern what's happening in politics uh, on a national basis the other day, and that's essentially what they told us as well, is that, uh, yeah, it, it was it piqued our interest in the summertime because the COVID thing seemed to, d to die mm -hmm. down a little bit. You know, we were flattening the curve. Everything seemed to be okay. We, we'd moved into phase three. Uh, so, yeah, let's pay attention to this. But as, as this gentleman told me, he says, look, at, uh, you know, the finance minister is gone. Uh, we has left the country for all intents and purposes as far as the charitable aspect of this is concerned. Uh, we're more concerned about the fact that it looks like the numbers for COVID are going up. What's the government going to do? And to get the sense that that's, that's what we're going to be looking for from the – when I say the government, obviously there's the, the, the Trudeau liberals, but I'm talking about the uh, opposition parties as well. Are they going to play ball together or are they going to focus on individual things here? And the first sign that we will see will be the speech of the throne and how the opposition party react to that. And so there were some speculation a few weeks ago that maybe we could have an, an election, so a vote of confidence. I don't think this will happen. Yes, there will be the vote of confidence, but I don't think that the government will be defeated on that. Now, if opposition party do defeat the government on the speech of the throne, then we could question what's the motivation of those parties. Um, a bit like what we have seen in New Brunswick. So was it a good time to go in to an election. Uh, I don't think most Canadians will reward any party that would launch an election. Um, and so, yes, the focus will be on, on the economic recovery and dealing with, with COVID. And uh, as you said, um, now that Bill Marneau is, is out of the picture, uh, people want to hear if it's a freelance. So we have a new finance minister. What is her view? What does she say? in the future. It was interesting for me to hear that she has spoken a few times with Paul Martin, who was finance minister. And so Paul Martin is known for having brought back balanced, a balanced budget. And so is that something that she wants to bring eventually? Do we, will we say more, see more fiscal responsibility? I'm not sure. I think we'll see more spending. Uh, but that said, what will be the tone of the new finance minister? So that's kind of the thing that Canadians will pay attention a bit more than um, uh, the We Charity thing and, and uh, all the struggles and the debates are, that are going on in Parliament. Uh, it's interesting. I, I saw that story as well, Genevieve, that, uh, that she had discussions with Paul Martin. Uh, but the, it, what I found fascinating about this is Paul Martin's reputation as a finance minister, first of all, is very good. As I mm -hmm. said, we went from a terrible financial situation to 11 years of, of, of budget surpluses, uh, basically under his guidance. Yes. Uh, but he was never known as a spender uh, when it came to being a finance minister uh, until they got the house in order. And uh, I don't know that there's an appetite in the country for that kind of uh, austerity right now. Uh, you know, the, the government has spent an awful lot of money right now trying to fight COVID, and if the numbers are going back up, I would think they're going to continue to do that. They will, and uh, it's the Prime Minister that will dictate what's coming out. And so, yes, Paul Martin was not a spender, was more a guardian of public funds, but uh, Jean Chrétien also was like that, so he was not a big spender. Uh, if you look at uh, Justin Trudeau, that's totally the opposite. And so since he was elected in 2015, Justin Trudeau said clearly, yes, we're going to spend more, we're going to tax more also, so uh, we don't, don't, don't want to go into a big deficit. That's where the story <laughs> didn't went as, as planned. Um, but Justin Trudeau is much more in the mind of spending. And so we would think that he would like to have a finance minister that would have the same view. And probably why Bill Mano left is that they were not necessarily sharing the same views on spending. And so uh, for me, yes, there is a big contrast between uh, Justin Trudeau and Jean Chrétien. Uh, the fact that Christophe Freeland said that she spoke to Paul Martin, I think it was a, a 
public relation thing in the sense that she wanted to reassure Canadian that she's not a big spender. She still has that concern of balancing the book eventually. Um, but I don't think that it, this will be the priority in the coming, uh, not even months, but years. Genevieve, what about the, the strategy for the opposition parties, particularly the Conservatives in a situation like this? Uh, they've been pretty vocal over the last couple of months, especially about the deficit and the, the growing deficit that we have. Uh, we've also heard from a, a number of people in the financial community, presidents of, of most of the banks and, and some of the folks on Bay Street, saying, look, at, uh, this, is, this is going out of control. We've got to do something to rein this in. Uh, yet at the same time, as you said, if we're going to have to be doling out more money for COVID and for the unemployment situations and whatever programs the government might introduce here, uh, they pretty much got a free pass the first time around because we were concerned about the severity of, of the virus. How are they going to respond to it this time? The response will be different with the Erin tool, and we already see some changes. And so he's more, uh, I wouldn't say in a collaborative mood, but he's not as strong, taking a strong opposition stance as uh, Andrew Scheer was doing uh, just before him. I also hear that he, was, he said that we will return back to balance in about 10 years. That would be uh, the horizon, the, the, the time frame that they have, the conservatives. To, to go back to balanced budget, which is a pretty long time, but nonetheless, I think a reasonable time also given the situation. So I think they will more push they will push more the government into the measure, saying, "Well, you are spending a lot, but maybe you should think about tax break instead." Like we see in Ontario, Doug Ford is much more into tax breaks uh, than into a spending mode. So that would be more on the substance of the policy. They will probably um, attack the government and try to put a bit aside this deficit issue. Still try to show a responsible position, but not focus too much on bringing back. Uh, budget balance in a very short time, like two, three, four years, that would be, I don't think that most Canadians will accept that. Um, but yes, uh, so focus more on the substance, but it's not an easy time for opposition party because uh, people see it as a crisis. And so during a crisis, you go to the emergency. And so if it mean, means spending, then you spend. So uh, mostly difficult for uh, opposition, mostly for right-wing party that must redefine themselves. How do you uh, present small government in a time of crisis? That's not easy to find as a, a proposition. Genevieve, what about the government standpoint now as, as they come back and, of course, as you mentioned, the speech on the throne next week in the, in the first session. Uh, we've heard rumors about things like a national daycare program, about a, a basic income project, and, and uh, maybe some revisions to the, to the employment insurance uh, problems that we seem to be facing these days. All of them with a big price tag. Do, uh, do they boldly move forward on one or some of those things, or do they just kind of pull back until they get this the virus under control once again? I think that's the debate going on currently. Those are the discussions. So how quickly do you should you act? It depends how serious uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister, is towards those programs or one of those programs. Because he has a window of opportunity now that in a time of crisis, it's easier to pass big, bold programs. Uh, because the population is not as hesitant towards them that it is usually. Um, so I, the latest rumor that we heard was about insurance employment, uh, employment insurance. And so if you want to change it, uh, change the criteria to have those 
this insurance um, to brother who could who are who is entitled for for the program, that would be the time to do it. Now, could he do everything? I don't think so. And so probably the discussion is which program do you focus on? Is it bank, basic income? Uh, the elderly also that we heard lastly uh, recently, uh, employment insurance, um, uh, health. So there are many, many options out, um, and I expect the government to present us one, probably two options the next week with the, the speech of the Trump. And, and you figure that's probably what the debate was uh, behind closed doors over the last couple of days. In other words, we got one shot at this. Which one are we going to go with in a, in a situation like this? I think so. And we did hear a lot, of, hear, hear a lot of propositions. So I think they were testing that uh, to see how people would react towards that. Uh, but yes, within caucus, and also the environment uh, would also be a, a factor. So uh, yes, a lot of debate. But of course, we cannot do. They cannot do everything, and so they're going to have to choose one priority, probably a priority that they think they have the support of the majority of the Canadians. Which you figure is probably going to be something along the lines of maybe a daycare program, which has been, none of these are new ideas, of course, but they've always been things that have been put on the shelf by previous governments. Yes, and daycare is uh, is important because if you want parents to go back to work, they need their daycare system. And so that's on the mind of many Canadians currently. Uh, and as you said, it has been a topic of discussion for many, many, many years. And uh, yes, maybe that would be the time for the federal government to, to act on that. And if they look at the uh, example of Quebec, which has its daycare system for many years now, uh, it is viewed by, I would say, almost all Quebecers as a big success. And so uh, probably would have this popularity also elsewhere in Canada. So that would be something interesting for the government, the Liberals, to do. Genevieve Tellier, Professor of Political Studies at the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, as always, thank you so much for this. Great talking with you again today. Me too. Thank you very much. As I say, we're going to get a, a rundown from the Prime Minister later on today. Abigail Beeman, a Global National Correspondent in Ottawa, of course, joins us to give us a quick overview of that. Uh, Abigail, thanks for joining us. Appreciate the time today. Absolutely. Good morning. I, I guess this, this retreat was kind of like the, the pregame huddle before they get back into battle next week. Uh, w w there was a lot of talk about a, a, a bold environmental plan. We were just mentioning about the, you know, maybe daycare, maybe basic income. Uh, but it just seems as if the, the, the laser focus now is just going to be on COVID-19. That's right. And that's a question we'll be uh, putting to the Prime Minister this afternoon uh, at his availability uh, and a question we have already been putting to uh, minister after minister as they come through and many stress to us uh, that, uh, that that climate change and that uh, the, the importance of a green agenda you know has not lessened in any way that they're still working on it the environment minister himself saying nothing has been t has taken a back burner uh, on this but uh, but you said it the rising case numbers across the country make COVID-19 the number one priority for this government uh, you know there was talk of you know will we see a, an economic recovery plan in the throne speech and uh, that's been set for a while now that we're not expecting to see any hard numbers or any big plan for economic recovery because the government is still very much treating this as an active crisis uh, and, and their number one priority is controlling the virus and, and uh, protecting the health of Canadians. So we'll see if we get any specifics on this this afternoon, but we're uh, one week away now from the speech from the throne and from Parliament resuming.
You, you make a great point, and I know you've talked about this in your previous reporting from Ottawa as well, though. Uh, they they came out with a pretty bold agenda in their last throne speech, of course, and, and that all got sidelined because of the COVID crisis that, that happened over the last nine months now. Uh, so we, I, there's no anticipation I'm getting now that there's going to be any bold moves from this government. Maybe, as, as our previous guest told us, uh, maybe one thing of the long list of things that they talked about they may go for, figuring they got one shot at this with the opposition parties. Well, we are expecting to see health spending, uh, specifically child care and long-term care. There are expected to be financial supports for Canadians in need in this throne speech. I guess it depends on your definition of bold, because the, yeah. the idea that was that was floating around before was a, a memo about $100 billion in green spending, and sources tell us that is off the table. Uh, so it depends, it depends where bold is. Um, the Prime Minister is beginning meetings today with uh, leaders of the opposition to hear their input on what they want to see in the throne speech, uh, although he has a good sense of or from from what they've said publicly already, but we'll see how much he incorporates, uh, as you say, from the opposition uh, to, to have a throne speech that's palatable to them if indeed he does not want an election. Well, uh, as you mentioned, you'll have an opportunity to talk to the Prime Minister and, and put some of these questions to him a little bit later on, and we'll be uh, watching for your reporting on Global National later on today. Abigail, thanks so much for this. Good talking with you again. Thank you. Take care. Abigail Beeman, of course, Global National Ottawa correspondent, uh, who will be, uh, as I said, doing the one-on-one with the Prime Minister along with uh, some of the other ministers as they come out of this building. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Yesterday we heard from the Premier expressing some deep concern about the numbers uh, province-wide. Uh, and yesterday in our program, of course, we talked with uh, Dr. Todd Coleman from Laurier University, who reminded us all that uh, there's a number of things that we still need to be doing. The three main things I'm talking about are mask wearing, social distancing, and uh, hand washing and sanitization. I think a lot of people are making these compensation one or the other. So I'll wear a mask. That means I can go out in public and do whatever I want. It's not one or the other. It's still all three. And it it needs to remain like that until we, we have lower numbers. Well, we'd like to think that we're going to get to those lower numbers, but in the meantime, uh, our our healthcare professionals are responding to what they've seen in the last little while. Hospitals in Hamilton, Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brant, and Burlington have all decided to team up to ensure that uh, when this second wave happens, and it seems inevitable if we're not already into it, uh, that there could be a potential surge in cases, of course, and uh, they're going to be ready for this. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Cheryl Williams, who's the Vice President of Adult Regional Care for Hamilton Health Sciences. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, you're alarmed, I'm sure, as, as we all are about seeing this, uh, this, I don't know if we can classify it as a spike, but the increase in numbers is very troubling. Uh, nobody wants to go back to the way we were six months ago. Certainly. So I think um, all of us have got our eye on uh, the number of cases that are in the community. And at this point in time, we haven't necessarily seen uh, an increase in the hospitals uh, here in our region, uh, certainly at least not in Hamilton, um, but we are... Uh, really working to try to make sure that we've got plans in place should uh, the need for hospitalization related to COVID increase. What I'm impressed about here with the announcement about the collaboration that uh, that you're involved in, though, Doctor, uh, is that, let's face it, I mean, we were playing defense uh, when COVID hit back in the springtime, or like winter, really, uh, reacting to it as we were learning more about this. This, this step now about collaboration of, of, of uh, the assets and, and of the expertise that you've got here is really being proactive about COVID now. 
Absolutely. So, you know, the hospitals in our region have a long history of collaborating and working together. And certainly when uh, we COVID first started emerging in our communities, I think all of us began looking at and focusing on trying to create capacity uh, within uh, the healthcare system in order for us to be able to respond to the needs of our uh, of the communities that we serve. And as the uh, work and the planning has evolved, we've had some time also to uh, really uh, work together to formalize and standardize the way in which we can uh, respond to COVID. And so our teams have worked together and we've created a strategy uh, that provides a coordinated, evidence-based and equitable approach to caring for COVID in our region. And the, the goal behind the planning is to uh, allow the system to support and accommodate fluctuations in demand for COVID care while trying to minimize any potential disruptions to our scheduled regional and community care services. Well, this only makes sense, really, doesn't it? I mean, as, as we've discussed for many months now, uh, COVID doesn't know any boundaries. I mean, it, you know, it doesn't go from community to community. It's just out there. Uh, it doesn't make a distinction between Haldeman and Hamilton. Uh, it, it's there. It's so a collaborative effort between all these facilities that are going to be impacted uh, when this surge happens uh, makes all kinds of sense. Absolutely. And part of the reason we want to work together to try to balance out the demand is to make sure that no one... Uh, areas or one community becomes overwhelmed. So this plan allows for the transfer of patients if needed, if there is a surge in COVID cases in one of our communities, uh, so that we are really supporting each other to minimize those potential disruptions to other well, care. And, and we've seen this with some of the work that's already gone on. And, you know, we don't, no, don't need to get into too much detail about the collaboration with healthcare facilities that's happened in Hamilton between uh, St. Joe's and Hamilton Health Sciences. That's been going on for many, many years. Uh, yeah. and, and, and of course, you know, right across the bay is the city of Burlington uh, and the facilities that they've got with uh, the additions to Joe Brand Hospital and a facility that they built, uh, specifically for COVID. And, and I know that some critics said, well, like, they never got to use it. Uh, and the response I heard was, well, not yet, but we don't know what's going to happen with the second wave. So, uh, it makes all kinds of sense to just understand that, look at every one of these communities, uh, is going to have to work together on this. I, I, I guess the question a lot of us are asking right now, though, doctor, uh, is, is, is it inevitable that we're going to see this wave and, and how serious could it possibly be? Because your, your point is well taken. We saw what happened to the, to the hospital system in the United States when, when communities got overwhelmed. Uh, you know, cancellation of surgeries. We had that happen here as well. Uh, are you concerned that we may get to that point again? Well, it's certainly our hope that the transmission rates will remain low in our region and that the fluctuations, because there will be fluctuations in uh, the in the demand for COVID care, uh, but that those fluctuations will be able to be managed within our current hospital capacity. And we really do hope that the regional strategy would not need to be activated, but we're getting ready and we're prepared. So creating this type of approach we believe is critical to our pandemic response plan and to ensure that we are prepared for any potential uh, surge in COVID cases that may happen. So, and you're doing that, and I know that surgeries, of course, have, 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 are going on at all these facilities, of course, now, uh, and they're trying to catch up with the backlog and, and in different ways and different fashions, but always with an eye to these numbers uh, and, and looking at these numbers that we've seen over the last four or five days. Uh, and as we just expressed, of course, the Premier is very concerned about this and may actually put some new restrictions in place or go back to some of the old ones, as it turns out. But from from your standpoint, from the medical standpoint, Doctor, is there a benchmark that you're looking at to say if we hit that level, uh, then we're going to have to put this plan in action? So we are certainly working on all of the uh, 
triggers uh, to let us know about where, how much capacity do we have, where would we need to, where can we create additional capacity, where does surge demand exist, and, and what other things can we do in order to try to allow us to continue to uh, minimize the disruption for, for the other types of care. So uh, our regional model of care is one of the, the strategies that we're looking at, and we continue to keep planning as much as we can in the hopes of trying to um, avoid any further potential disruptions and that we can manage uh, the demand for COVID in our communities. Well, I, I do want to highlight uh, that, that one of the, there's many things that people can do to keep the transmission rates low, and I think uh, need, uh, that many of us continue to reinforce that uh, we do know that these practices work, practicing good hand hygiene, maintaining physical distancing, and wearing a mask. Uh, we also encourage people to stay at home if they're feeling unwell. And as the flu vaccine becomes available this year, we are encouraging people to uh, consider getting that vaccine to protect yourselves and those around you. So uh, those are things we know work, and we continue to encourage our communities to do that. We are a little bit better prepared, I would think, than we were, for instance, in February and March of, of this year. Uh, you know, there was a shortage of uh, personal protective equipment. There was a shortage of ventilators for people that were suffering with severe cases of this. Uh, and I don't want to be naive and say, don't worry, it's not going to be that bad because we're all set for this now. But, but you know, as you say, and we're, more, we're smarter than we were, we already know that the three things you just mentioned here are one of the reasons why we've kept the numbers down in, in, in not just here in this area, but, of course, right across the country. Uh, so it's a matter of, I guess, getting back to basics as far as, as trying to keep this curve down. I mean, flattening the curve once again. Yes, and everything we can do to flatten the curve makes a difference. You know, and I think uh, what makes this challenging is that there is uncertainty. We don't actually know what the numbers will look like and how much capacity will be required. But I think the important message to know is that uh, there's been a lot of planning and a lot of collaborative work that's underway to make sure that we can do everything we possibly can working better together to make sure that we maintain as much capacity in our communities as is possible. Well, Doctor, it's great to know that there is a plan in place and a collaborative plan that's in place here. I, I guess my hope at this stage is that you never have to use it. Uh, we'll see what happens over the next little <laughs> while. Uh, that's our hope, too. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Doctor. Great talking with you. Dr. Cheryl Williams, of course, uh, Vice President of the Adult Regional Care at Hamilton Hill Sciences and the collaboration that's going on in the greater community, which is not surprising at all because that's been happening for the longest time anyway uh, to deal with other medical situations. Uh, COVID, of course, is on everybody's mind because of what's going on, not just with the numbers, uh, but back to school. Just about everybody now, I know there was some staggering re return to schools, but uh, just about everybody in London, Hamilton, Burlington, and in and, and our CHML and, and CFPL listing areas are back in the classroom right now. Uh, and the concern here among a number of teachers that we've been talking about even long before the school year started uh, was what was going to be happening in that school environment. Uh, one of the main concerns we're hearing right now is how many students, and both at the elementary and secondary level, are showing up uh, not wearing masks in the classroom. And that's got a number of teachers concerned. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Daryl Jerome. Daryl, of course, is with the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, a representative for this area. Uh, Daryl, thanks for jumping in. Really appreciate the time today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about this. I mean, as, as, as Dr. Williams just told us, uh, those are the things we need to do, get back to basics. And one of those, of course, is wearing masks. Uh, it, it, from what I'm hearing, there's an alarming number of students that are either being exempted or just not bothering. How, how do you react to something like that? How do teachers respond? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're calling us or they're messaging us saying that they're, they're obviously very concerned about 
the fact that there are students who uh, who have have been exempted from exempted sorry from mask wearing uh, without any sort of documentation. Um, so they're you know students are walking around without masks. They're not sure if it's you know for legitimate reasons, medical, you know developmental um, anxiety, any of those reasons, or or not if they're just flagrantly um, defying that. I'm hearing from teachers that you know are walking the halls. Uh, supervising uh, um, study halls, and, and as soon as they leave, students are taking off their masks, wandering around without them, and, and engaging in conversation. <sighs> I mean, we're putting people in a precarious situation to begin with, and, you know, you and I have talked in the past about some of the concerns that the, the teachers have had about social distancing in the classroom, class sizes, which right. is tied, of course, very much into social distancing in situations like this. But the concern here, we heard the, the plan the government was rolling out uh, with Minister Lecce and, of course, with the Premier, uh, was that it could be exemptions. But they were not very clear as to exactly what you had to do to qualify. I mean, if you just ask for an exemption, do you get one? Yes. The the form that the, the board sent out um, was, I think, a bit confusing. So the numbers, I don't have numbers. I've asked the board to give me some numbers on exemptions. I don't need, obviously, student names, and nor do I want them, but I'd like an idea of how many uh, students are walking around without masks. The form itself basically is a checkbox of I exempt my, my son or daughter or, or I don't, um, and, and nothing needs to be provided. And they're citing human rights grounds and, and, and ministry uh, documentation, which, you know, is a fair point. The, the issue here is that, um, you know, we've got students who are anxious and wearing masks, and they see students who are, aren't wearing them, and they don't want to bring anything home to their parents or their grandparents, et cetera. Um, so that's that's anxiety. Of course, my members are, you know, you know, in front of students that aren't wearing them, and they're concerned themselves. And I think part of it too, a big part, Bill, is is that um, there is no, we have no uh, virtual school for the secondary panel. Um, elementary does, but secondary doesn't. I saw you had Peter Silburn on yesterday, and you were yeah. remarking on that. Um, but he, you know, there was no mention of the fact secondary in, in Hamilton, which is the biggest board in the province that doesn't have a secondary virtual school, to my knowledge. So uh, the, I, the language here may be a strong, but I mean, your teachers are on the firing line right now, and they're they're being exposed to a potential, uh, you know, positive case. We just don't know what this t- situation. Yeah. Uh, the concern I've got, and I think you and I talked about this the last time you were on the program, is is I get this like about okay, personal rights and freedoms, uh, yada yada yada, and I'm a su- huge supporter of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I get that. But in this country, and I don't want to get too deep into the weeds and the law here, uh, the greater good to the community overrides uh, individual rights. Uh, you know, you've got the individual right to drive 140 miles an hour down uh, King Street in Hamilton if you want, but it's it's against the greater good of the community, and you will be charged. Uh, I, I can't understand why, why boards of education, and for that matter the ministry, aren't acknowledging that and saying that's that should be one of the parameters. No, I, I, w- I would agree with you. And I, and I just saw a tweet from Christine Elliott saying that the cases are 315 right now. So we're really concerned about those numbers going up. You know, the sick kids study saying, you know, it, it's impossible to physically distance when you have 12 to 15 students in a classroom. Now, thankfully, we don't have those, to my knowledge, those issues in our board. It's an elementary one, and I have enough stories about that, but I won't speak to that. It's not my area. Um, but, yeah, there, there's, there is a big concern uh, uh, about... Uh, not enough of these precautions being in place. And when you have people flagrantly not wearing masks, and some, again, for medical reasons and so on, fair, but there's nothing that stops someone who's you know, perhaps a COVID denier or an anti-masker saying, well, I just, my kids are just not going to wear it. Well, and there is the concern, and, and I know 
you know, the idea about getting documentation or a note from the doctor uh, can be tedious uh, because, uh, you know, doctors are a little willy about uh, having people actually come into their offices. And, and last time I checked, I think that's actually a charge, a minimal charge for writing uh, notes uh, about situations like this from doctors. And some people may not want to pay that. But uh, the other end of this thing is, is look, at, you know, you have to wonder about the greater good. And I, I get you. I, I know families that, that have children that, that have medical concerns. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, some have, you know, dealing with asthmatic problems or other respiratory problems or uh, even some special needs kids of course that uh, that would not feel comfortable as a matter of fact just the opposite feel very uncomfortable wearing masks so that's fine but that's not being explained in other words people that don't want to do it are not doing it and we don't know what the rationale is well exactly and uh, you know and you mentioned about the doctor's notes and i know the board isn't requiring it for for various reasons but i know one is to not overload the, the medical system and they've said that because doctors are busy with other things they don't want to be having to write these uh, exemption notes for medical reasons i mean that would be ideal but again we don't want to put the pressure on the medical system the other point what i said before is a virtual school there might there are ways that you know uh students you know may be you know, they may be more comfortable in a virtual school environment, but because the board's not really offering that, they're they're going to school anyway, um, and and that could have you know decreased the the need um, that we're seeing here for exemptions. But I mean, I'm I'm just um, being theoretical here since we don't have it. Well, the the concern here in the long term, and, and you you see this in the, in the classroom, I guess yourself, uh, is if two or three students start doing this, and the others say, "Hey, why the hell should I do it then?" And, yes. and it, all of a sudden, you've got everybody saying, "This is we're not doing this anymore." I yeah, what that. are you going to do about it? Yeah, I actually, I absolutely brought those points up to the board and said, "What happens when you get a kid that just rips her mask off and says, I don't, I don't want to wear a mask anymore?'" You know, the board responds, "Well, that's pretty extreme." I said, "Well, you haven't taught the classes I have because that, that is absolutely you're dealing with teenagers and they." We're early days, right? People haven't, maybe they haven't reached that mask fatigue right now, but they will. I've got a story from one of my members this morning saying he can't believe the number of kids hanging out before school on school grounds, not wearing a mask, not distancing. They're just hanging out closely because they're teenagers and they're, they don't see the issue, I guess, with it. And so my members see it and think, well, they're bringing this in. They're, yeah, they put a mask on when they get inside, but the damage is done. They're, they're, they're up close to each other talking on school grounds, so. Well, we'll continue to track this and keep us up to speed, will you, Daryl, as to what's happening with this and how the board may respond. And, and of course, if there's going to be an increase in these numbers as well, uh, yeah. this is to be continued, certainly. Absolutely. Well, happy to be on again if you'd like, if you'd have me. Thanks. You, you betcha. Thanks again, Daryl. Talk soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Daryl Jerome, uh, the district representative for the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, uh, concerned about masks or the lack of masks, I guess, in many of the classrooms. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An announcement that surprised a lot of folks, the United States well, blinked yesterday in its latest tariff dispute with Canada, lifting a 10% levy on Canadian-made aluminum just hours uh, before uh, Ottawa was about to let fly with a suit of countermeasures. Uh, but it's not as simple as, okay, forget about it, now let's live happily ever after. There are some implications to this. Uh, to try to uh, unwrap some of this stuff and get us a better understanding, please to welcome Matthew Cronby to the program, partner at BLG. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us today. My pleasure, Bill. I know a lot of people have characterized this as, okay, the U.S. backed down on this, but uh, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot behind this uh, uh, that's going on. And I, I got the sense uh, when I looked at some of the statements from some of the U.S. representatives here, Matthew, that basically they're saying, okay, we're going to drop them for now. But, you know, the, the, but this is not the end of it, is it? No, no, it's far, it's far from the end of it. And I'm not, uh, it's, it's not clear to me that the U.S. backed down either. And the statement that came out 
from the U.S. government, from the U.S. trade representatives, said that uh, this arrangement was essentially done in uh, consultation with Canada. And what it looks like, it's not, it's not clear exactly to what extent this was unilateral by the U.S. or to what extent uh, uh, Canada has agreed to it. Canada certainly doesn't want to be seen as agreeing to it, but, uh, but like some kind of, uh, some kind of deal, implicit or explicit, was, was cut here so that Canada wouldn't retaliate, but Canada would essentially be, uh, be at least you're agreeing at some level to a managed trade regime with the U.S. on aluminum. Yeah, as, I, as I'm seeing this, and you're right, we, Christy Freeland was quite adamant about this yesterday. She said, we haven't yeah. agreed to anything. Uh, you know, there's no deal here that we need to abide by. Uh, so you know, that, that, I think, clarified that point of it, notwithstanding, as you mentioned, what some of the U.S. officials said. So if, you know, and they, they, by the way, they dropped the tariffs retroactively to the beginning of the month. That sounds really good. But it seems, though, Matthew, as if what they have done is put restrictions on the amount of steel or aluminum air that can be brought into the United States. Well, th- th- that's right. Essentially, the U.S. has set quotas on how much, uh, well, it's aluminum, on how much aluminum Canada can export uh, over the next four months, well, starting with September and the, and the following three months. And th- those volumes are relatively low. And what the U.S. has said is if uh, Canadian exporters exceed those volumes by more than uh, more than 5% over, over those volumes, that the U.S. will... Uh, will reimpose the tariffs and will do it retroactively back to the beginning of the month. So it creates a, a lot of uncertainty for Canadian exporters of uh, these unlo- unwrought aluminum products, these sort of raw aluminum, basically. And if there's a sense of deja vu with uh, some of our listeners maybe going through right now when you talk about quotas, uh, this was one of the contentious points about the the, the NAFTA deal, the, the Kumsa deal that was negotiated uh, when it came to, to, to dairy products, assert, uh, the U.S. wanted to jump into the Hamilton market. Uh, and there were quotas that were installed in situations like that. Same thing with the European trade deal that Canada negotiated a couple of years ago. So I, I don't know if this is just a, you know, this is a, a bullet in the gun that the U.S. loves to use a lot of the time, but the, the quotas are going to be somewhat problematic for this industry, aren't they? Well, I, I suspect they are. I mean, the quotas, there, there are lots of countries, Canada, as you mentioned, the EU, the U.S. itself, in cases of products like sugar, have uh, quotas on agricultural products. Those exist. Those are recognized under, under our free trade deals. What's different about this is the U.S. basically used the pretext of national security to uh, impose additional duties on Canadian exports of steel and aluminum. They, they withdrew them uh, before the new NAFTA, we'll call it, came into force because uh, the U.S. administration had upset a number of members of Congress and wanted to get, uh, wanted to get uh, the new NAFTA agreement through Congress at, at the time. So uh, they, w- they withdrew those tariffs. But then in a couple of months ago, uh, President Trump decided to reimpose the tariffs on aluminum uh, after some lobbying by a couple of U.S. companies, uh, not the majority of the U.S. aluminum industry, which actually opposes those tariffs. But, but the, the problem here is it, it creates, you know, the, the, the new NAFTA is supposed to create predictability, stability, essentially a free trade 
uh, regime between Canada and the U.S. and most products. And here, you know, two and a half months after the the new NAFTA came came into force, we essentially have a managed trade regime with the U.S. and one that doesn't provide a whole lot of at least in, in a major exporting uh, export of of ours, a raw aluminum product, and uh, and it doesn't provide a lot of predictability or stability because, as, as I say, the U.S. Uh, can reimpose these tariffs at, at any time. And as, you know, it's said that they, if Canada exceeds these what I'll call quota amounts, uh, they'll, they'll slap the tariffs on retroactively. But I think there was an expectation uh, when this, I'll use your phrase, the new NAFTA deal, because it depends. It's got a different name on which side of the 49th exactly. parallel you're on. I don't know if that's even going to be resolved. That couldn't even be negotiated. But anyway, so with this was, we thought, okay, thank God, now these, this, this tariff war is going to be over now because we've got this new trade deal. Uh, but, you know, and by the way, it was a long time, even after they agreed to the deal, that they had lifted the tariff on, on steel and aluminum back in those days, and now he's reimposed it and taken it back again. Is the deal worth the paper it's written on? I mean, because it seems that Trump can do whatever he wants whenever he wants. Well, the, the, this is a concern, and this is a concern for you know, many of us who've been observing uh, you know, what, the, what the U.S. administration is up to, and you know, it likes to act unilaterally. It believes in managed trade, not free trade. So the question is, you know, what kind of protections does uh, I like calling it the new NAFTA. We could call it the USMCA or the Kuzma yeah. or the Mexican call it the TMEC, but let's call it the new the new <laughs> NAFTA. Uh, uh, it doesn't really do a whole lot to discipline that. I mean, you know, in, in fairness, for most goods, most of the time, uh, it provides the same kind of stability, predictability that the old NAFTA did. And and so it's valuable to have an agreement like that in force, absolutely. But the concern is that given this administration's penchant for unilateral trade measures uh, and uh, its desire to manage trade, not to have free trade, you know, they see trade as sort of a, a zero-sum game, that, that uh, there's still the opportunity for the U.S. when, you know, when someone gets Trump's ear or... Uh, import volumes come go out of balance by someone's perception to uh, threaten new tariffs under the guise of national security or something else uh, and to or to impose those tariffs and then to in this case they they've backed down in a sense but all they've backed down uh, in favor of is a managed trade uh, regime and you know my, one of my concerns is that okay they've done this on for aluminum now, the other product that was in the crosshairs uh, with the the national security tariffs was was steel. What happens? I can't see that happen anything happening there before the election. But what happens if you know one of President uh, Trump's buddies, Nucor or another U.S. steel company, get gets his ear after the election? Um, let, let's assume let's assume he wins the election. You know, are we looking at new? Uh, Managed trade or new threats of tariffs on on steel as well. I think it's a real concern. Well, it, it certainly is because, like you say, the, the whole idea of a trade deal is to create some sense of stability, and we clearly don't seem to have that. It, I'm getting the sense right now that uh, you know the policy from the White House is really dictated on what Peter Navarro says to the president on any given morning, and he just responds to it. I mean, without any even looking at a trade deal. Well, uh, I, I don't think I don't think agreements like. Uh, 
like like the NAFTA, the WTO agreement, any anything like that uh, cuts a whole lot of weight with this administration. I think the the evidence is clear on that on a number of fronts. So yeah, I I agree. And whether whether it's Peter Navarro or you know, or certain industry interests, I, I I completely agree with you. That seems to be how trade policy is made, or you know, what what the president thinks. Uh, yeah, thinks will win him uh, political credit with a with a particular constituency. A- absolutely. Um, I, again, I don't want to overstate that this means you know, doom and gloom acro- uh, across the no, board, no. but it does it does mean that we're we're in a period of of considerable uncertainty, greater uncertainty than we than we've seen for a long time with what you know the country that's far and away our our biggest trading partner, and you know ideally the new NAFTA. Uh, would, would have stabilized things on, on that front, but you know the, the sign is that at least with respect to certain uh, of, of our key exports, it hasn't done that, uh, and, and that that is a, pro- a problem. You know, you know, if I'm if I'm a Canadian exporter, not necessarily of these products, but generally, you know, I, I think I think I would I be, would be wondering. Whether you know, I'm going to get caught by uh, you know, any trade wars that blow up as a result of fights over things like steel and, and aluminum, and you know, and whether I should be diversifying, you know, my my uh, export into other potentially more stable markets, you know, for for example, in, into into the European Union. Well, I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. We'll see what happens. Uh, great to get your perspective on this, Matthew. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure, Bill. Take care. Matthew Crombie, of course, partner at BLG. Uh, let's continue the discussion because obviously this is going to have implications on what's happening on this side of the 49th parallel as well. And, and to Matthew's point, you know, the question I guess a lot of us are asking, well, what's next then? Uh, you know, who is he going to direct his anger at or his frustration at next? Uh, Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University, joins us to talk about this. Uh, first of all, Marvin, were you surprised by the U.S. announcement <laughs> yesterday? Well, absolutely floored, Bill. Uh, uh, our good friends at CTV had contacted me to speculate on what I thought <laughs> might happen at 3 p.m. with the counter tariffs by uh, Mary Wu and and uh, Christian Freeland, and I, uh, you know, I went off on my my rant about well, I think they're going to do this, and of course, Canada is going to be a very measured response, just exactly matching what the Americans did, nothing more, nothing less. And, of course, the other hint we'd had was they were going to limit it all to aluminum products rather than going after, you know, Kentucky whiskey or Vermont maple syrup. And that was a lovely bit of speculation. And then sort of 20 minutes after I got off the air, Robert Lighthizer <laughs> said, guess what? We're not going to do this anymore. We're canceling these, making it retroactive September 1st. It's, it's one of the most bizarre moves I have seen in international domestic or international trade uh, from the Americans in my lifetime. It's and again, we were just talking about the frustration that we must be feeling about this now, uh, and and the implication from the U.S. announcement anyway, from the people that made this decision, uh, saying that well, this was uh, this is agreed upon by both sides. And Christy Freeland said we didn't even talk to them about this. I mean, there was no discussion about that. There was no deal cut. Uh, it, this is it's, it's rather bizarre, and, and plus the fact that the U.S. said uh, we're, we're just you know we're not going to impose these, but they are basically putting a quota on the amount of aluminum that can go in there. 
you talked to us about this when the last steel and aluminum uh, tariffs yeah. were, were installed a couple of years ago, Marvin, and you made the point at that time that uh, there are a lot of strong voices in the industry down in the States that did not agree with that, and it actually hurt an awful lot of the steel industry and the aluminum industry. Uh, but if it's even one person, it happens to be a friend of Donald Trump's, bingo, everybody gets painted with the same brush. <laughs> Yes. Well, let's break that into a couple of chunks if I can. If I can sure. go back a month ago, a month ago to when the announcement was made, it it all uh, seemed quite bizarre. Donald Trump used what's called Clause 232, which gives the president the ability to do these tariffs in the name of national security. So he was com- was basically implying that Canadian aluminum was somehow undermining American security, when in fact America does not produce enough aluminum for its needs. It relies on imports, and it loves importing from Canada a nice, secure, trustworthy, so on and so forth partner. Uh, major aluminum companies in the United States said, this is a mistake. We, we need that Canadian aluminum. We, uh, these are like Alcoa, the, big, the mm-hmm. big giants. But there were two small, very small aluminum players um, primarily in the southeast of the United States, who had complained a bit, and basically they were complaining about prices being high. And, you know, we blame those Canadians for the prices being high. Rather than maybe blaming COVID or maybe blaming the shutdown of other industries around the world for reducing the supply and thus driving the price up, and Donald Trump decided to listen to them. It boggled our mind. Now, in the month that has passed, we have, yes, we've talked with the Americans in the sense that we've, you know, told them how disappointed we are in them, but there was no deal. We didn't make a concession. We didn't do anything. So Robert Lighthizer, just as fast as they put it on a month ago, removed them. He put a warning in. He said, this is not an unconditional uh, removal. We're going to keep monitoring Canadian aluminum imports. And maybe in January, if we don't see you sort of playing by our rules, maybe we'll reapply them. Well, January is an interesting time frame because, depending upon the outcome of the American election, you could have a completely different administration with perhaps a different policy towards us. I, I just I don't understand why they went on. I, then I don't understand why they went off. It's just the most bizarre thing. Uh, which raises the question, I mean, you've told us for years now, as you joined us on the program, that markets don't like instability, and uh, uh, this this is instability. This is this is problematic. I, I think a lot of people on this side of the border are saying, okay, what's next? Uh, you know, what's he going to target next? It's not a matter of if he's going to do it again, it's when. Well, in fact, Bill, when we chatted uh, in August, when he, when he, I think he was in Ohio or someplace when he announced these, and you asked me then, well, is this the end of it? And I said, with Donald Trump, it's how he feels when he wakes up. Uh, you know, logically, in Hamilton, we we have a steel-based economy. In some cases, uh, I would be worried about him waking up and saying, well, I think I'll reapply them to steel. Uh, having said that to you, now that he's removed them, and given that there is, I think it's a little less than seven weeks to the election, I would be really, really surprised to see him pull any other stunt like this, at least when it comes to Canada. He might do something with China. He might be able to turn them into the enemy. But I, I, whatever reason he wanted to try to make Canada an enemy during his election, I don't think it worked for him. Uh, and I, I, I just don't think he's going to do anything, at least in that time frame. But should he be reelected, and we head into 2021 with this peculiar economic policy in the air, yes, I think markets are going to be concerned. And, and again, it's a reminder to all Canadian companies to diversify. Don't just rely on that easy market 50 miles away from us, 
just across the border to sell to. It's been wonderful for us for 100 years, but it's a good reminder that it can be unreliable. We really do need to develop on a global stage. Well, I've got about a minute left, but I've got to ask you about the Canadian response to this. Obviously, uh, you know, Minister Freeland and, and Mr. Ng were just about ready to open up, you know, show me the envelope of yep. how they were going to respond to this. Uh, and Ms. Freeland was quite, uh, I think, adamant about the fact that uh, this, this isn't over yet. Uh, you know, we've still got these things that we're going to do, and if they come back at us, we're going right back at them. Yeah, so it's very important, I think, on the world stage that Canada is not seen as a pushover here. Yes, we have this very polite world view. You know, Canada always says please and thank you and apologizes even when it's not our fault. But we can't be somebody's whipping boy. And so they got their list together. They didn't knee-jerk in August. They've got it, and they're not going to throw this list away. Should Donald Trump pull something out of his hat, then we're not the least bit afraid to stand up to them. We just won a World Trade Organization ruling on softwood lumber, yet again, saying that the Americans were wrong. We, we, are, we need to stand our ground. And, and, in fact, the stupid thing is, during COVID-19, this is an unnecessary distraction for both countries. Why are we even doing this? But in Donald Trump's world, you know, it's, it's not long-term thinking. It's not deep strategic thinking. It's highly tactical and varies moment by moment. Doesn't it, though? Uh, Marvin Ryder at the DeGroot School of Business. As always, Marvin, thanks for this today. Glad to be with you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.